We turn in sacred scripture to Titus chapter 3. Paul's letter to the young pastor Titus as he labors on the island of Crete. Chapter 3. In the catechism uh, preaching this morning, we're going to look at Lord's Day 32 and we're going to interact with the language of good works. And the reason we read from Titus is because Titus, Paul's letter to Titus mentions the idea of good works multiple times. Let me point out for you uh, the three instances in chapters 1 and 2 where Paul makes reference to good works. Titus 1 verse 16. First of all, Titus 1 verse 16. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Then in chapter 2 verse 7, In all things showing thyself, Titus, a pattern of good works. And then in chapter 2 verse 14, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And now in chapter 3, there are three more references to good works. So as we read this chapter, notice those references in verses 1, 8, and 14. Chapter 3 of Paul's letter to Titus. Put them, put the congregation, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that, being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them, nothing be lacking unto them. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, 
that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me salute thee. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. May God place his blessing upon the reading of that word. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture and many passages of Scripture that we have the teaching of Lord's Day 32 of the Catechism found on page 19 in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 32. We're beginning the third part of the Catechism of Thankfulness. Question and answer 86. Since then, we are delivered from our misery merely of grace... Through Christ, without any merit of ours, why must we still do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by His blood, also renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for His blessings, and that He may be praised by us. Also, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? By no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, with Lord's Day 32, the Catechism turns our attention to the language and the concept of good works. And so in our preaching this morning, and really in the next 20 Lord's Days, going through the rest of the Catechism, we will be interacting with this subject of good works. Now, you will find that in some Christian circles, people are not really a fan of talking about good works. In fact, in some Christian circles, it even appears to be offensive to them if you mention good works, as if it is somehow reformed to avoid the language of good works. As if when someone brings up this language of good works, he should immediately be met with skepticism and fear and distrust, as if maybe that person is less than orthodox because he's talking about good works. The attitude of some people is even this. If you want to speak about good works, then only speak of how we should condemn our good works. Well, congregation, that's not the approach of the Reformed confessions, and that's not the attitude of the Scriptures. What we need to bear in mind is that here with Lord's Day 32, the Catechism is not introducing the idea of good works for the very first time. In fact, the Catechism is returning to the subject of good works. Because back in Lord's Day 24, when you were going through the Catechism with Professor Gritter's, The Catechism already brought up the subject of good works with relation to how we are righteous before God. And what the Catechism already made clear, very clear in Lord's Day 24, is that our good works do not contribute in any way to our righteous standing before God. 
Our good works are never what make us acceptable before God. Our good works are never the ground or the basis on which we are justified before God. Our good works are never the instrument by which we obtain fellowship with God or the means by which we enjoy fellowship and friendship with God. Our good works are never what obtain, maintain, or regain for us any of salvation's blessings. Lord's Day 24 emphasized, with Lord's Day 23, that our salvation is by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, through the instrument of faith alone. Really, all of the second section of the Catechism emphasizes that point. We are delivered from our sins and miseries by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But now here with Lord's Day 32, the Catechism is going to move forward. The Catechism isn't going to contradict what it already said in Lord's Day 24, but the Catechism is now going to build on the foundation that has already been laid. And so now here, with Lord's Day 32, entering the third section of the Catechism, the Catechism faces the question, how should we now express our thankfulness to God for the great salvation He has given us in Jesus Christ? And when you raise that kind of question, the discussion immediately turns to the topic of good works. And so that's what we look at this morning. Lord's Day 24 set forth negatively the place and the function that good works do not have in the life of the Christian. And now here with Lord's Day 32, the Catechism sets forth positively the place and the function that good works do have in the life of the Christian. And so we take as our theme this morning, the positive place and function of good works. And we look at that theme under three points. First, we look at their necessity. Second, we look at their purpose. And third, we look at their profit or their benefit. The positive place and function of good works. Since then, we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours. Why must we still do good works? Answer, because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by His blood, also renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image. Why must we do good works? Answer, because of the very nature of salvation. Because of what salvation itself is. Now, sometimes when people talk about salvation, they are only thinking of salvation in terms of justification, only in terms of the forgiveness of sins. And if that were the case, well, then we would freely acknowledge that good works do not belong to salvation. That's really how question, and answer, question 86 begins. Since then, we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours. We are delivered from our misery apart from any good works. And so the question is, why must we then do good works? So question 86 is emphasizing the truth that good works do not enter into the equation when we speak of being justified before God. That's also what we read in Titus 3 verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's not by any works of righteousness that we have done, 
that we are saved. But that's not the whole of our salvation. Because salvation is not just forgiveness. Salvation is also complete deliverance from all our sin and misery. Salvation is not just justification. Salvation is also sanctification. Salvation is not just God declaring us righteous. Salvation is also God making us holy. Now to be sure, justification is first. Justification is foundational, and without justification, you don't have sanctification. But salvation also includes sanctification. Christ is a complete Savior. One of the ways that I teach this to the catechism students is like this, and they've already experienced this, some of them at least. There is that work that Christ has done for us through His suffering and death on the cross, and there is also that work that Christ does in us by the operation of His Holy Spirit. What has Christ done for us? Well, He came in our flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary for us. And He put Himself under the law, and He put Himself under the curse of the law as our head and representative. He became a curse for us. He became sin for us who knew no sin. And through His earthly life, and through His lifelong obedience, and through His lifelong sufferings, and especially through His suffering and death on the cross, Jesus obtained for us a perfect, righteous standing before God. He bore our guilt. The handwriting of our sins was nailed to His cross, and He made the full payment for all our debts. As I emphasize to the catechism students, Jesus took away all our guilt our condemnation under the law. But the glorious thing about salvation is that Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't just take away our guilt, but Jesus also takes away our corruption. In Adam, we not only had original guilt, but in Adam, we also had original corruption. We not only became guilty before the law, criminals, lawbreakers, but we also died We spiritually died and became totally depraved, holy and capable of doing any good and inclined to all evil. We came under the bondage and tyranny of the devil and Satan and death. And we we came under the power and pollution of sin. We became corrupt. And that's how everyone is born into the world. But you see, Jesus, our Savior, delivers us from that too. He sends forth His Holy Spirit into our hearts and He regenerates us and He washes us. He delivers us from from death unto life. He translates us out of the kingdom of darkness and He translates us into the kingdom of light. He engrafts us into Himself by a true and living faith so that we now begin to live out of Christ and He renews us. That's the language of the catechism in answer 86. He renews us. And that's not justification That's different. That's sanctification. On the foundation of justification, Jesus Christ also sanctifies us. He renews us. What is this renewal? Well, it is the inner, spiritual, moral, ethical transformation of the sinner. So that the sinner is changed in the very depth of his existence, in the very depth, center of his being, so that he becomes now a child of light. He becomes a saint, a holy one. He's given a a new heart so that he's made inwardly good. Or to use the beautiful language that the apostle, apostle uses in 2 Corinthians 5, he becomes a new creature. 
Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Or to use the language of the apostle in Romans chapter 6, he has died to sin and has been risen with Christ. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Not dead in sin, dead to sin. We're no longer under that tyranny and bondage of sin. We've been set free. We're under grace. And that's Christ's work in us. There's his work for us. And now there is also his work in us. And Christ's work in us is his work of sanctification. Sanctification is Christ's work whereby, by his Holy Spirit, he makes the regenerated, justified believer more and more holy. And it begins right there at regeneration. And it continues on throughout the believer's entire life. So that the Holy Spirit enters into the child of God. He makes the child of God his temple. And then, by the, and then the Holy Spirit goes to work cleansing that temple. The Holy Spirit isn't satisfied living in a pigsty. So he goes to work renewing us, cleansing us, so that we might be fit temples of the Holy Spirit. True, this work of sanctification is never completed in this life. Even the holiest of men have only a small beginning of the new obedience while in this life. True, we still have that old man of sin, that depravity that continually cleaves to us, which is that enmity against God. But don't deny the reality, reality, beloved, that you are new creatures in Christ. You have a new man. You are a new man. That is your ultimate identity. The old man is on his way out. He's been cast off the throne in your heart. And Christ has taken up his residency on the throne in your heart. Don't minimize the glorious work that Christ is doing in you. Throughout our earthly life, Jesus is making us more and more holy so that there is progress in our sanctification. That's exactly God's purpose with us. He is glorifying us. He elected us in eternity that we might be holy and without blame before Him in love. He redeemed us on the cross that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And he regenerates us unto good works. Yes, we understand there are backslidings in the life of the child of God, but there is progress. God continues his work of molding and shaping and refining us, leading us to that state of glory in heaven where we will enjoy that perfect, completed work of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us. And as Titus 3 verse 8 puts it, right now, right now, as God's children, it is our calling to be careful to maintain good works. And that's what is good and profitable for you as new creatures in Christ to hear, to be careful to maintain good works. To use the language that the Catechism uses, Christ renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image. After His own image, Righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge. He renews us after His own image so that we, in a small way, begin to reflect Jesus Christ. And we begin to imitate Him. His righteousness and holiness and true knowledge. Christ Christ performs that glorious work of renewing us 
so that we begin to walk more and more in the ways of the Lord. And that's salvation, beloved. That's part of salvation too. And that's what explains the necessity of good works. This is why we must do good works. Good works are the necessary, inevitable fruit of Christ's work of renewing us. The Catechism even emphasized that way back in Lord's Day 24. It is impossible, the Catechism says, that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. It's impossible. You're new creatures in Christ, and that fact will bear itself out in your life, in a life of good works, so that you actively and consciously, with zeal and delight, do good works. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 17, Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. You will know them by their fruits. That's also why question and answer 87 says what it does. Those who continue in their wicked and ungrateful lives demonstrate, they evidence that they don't have the Holy Spirit and, and that they're not saved in Jesus Christ as they, as they stand in those sins and live in that life that is wicked and ungrateful. You know what the reality becomes for the child of God? The reality becomes that this is your joy. This is my joy. This is, this is our delight and this becomes our life. So we have a life of good works. We live a life that is zealous of good works. We live a life that is careful to maintain good works. And that's, that's the book of Titus. And that's what Paul tells Titus to, to bring to the people. Live that life careful to maintain good works. Well, here I want to go off into a little bit of a tangent and relate everything that I've just said to the law of God and to the preaching of the law of God. I could bring this up in the second point of the sermon. I could also bring this up in Lord's Day 34 where we start looking at the Ten Commandments. But I want to bring it up at this point here. Because of Christ's work of renewing me, by His Holy Spirit, after His own image, what is inevitable is this. I love God's law. And I also love receiving instruction in God's commandments. And I want to hear the obligations that God has placed upon me in the covenant of grace He has established with me. I want to know what I must do. I want to know how I must live as His child. And that too is the work of the Holy Spirit within me. And I know that this is what God has saved me unto. He's saved me unto a life of good works. His purpose with me is that I, as a branch, and grafted into the tree, bring forth fruit of good works. And that's also His command for me as His child. You see, the Holy Spirit works in us in such a way, renews us in such a way, that when we hear God's commands... We do not say, oh, now this is the way for us to earn salvation. That's not our response. We know where our salvation is. It's rooted in Jesus Christ. 
His righteousness alone is my righteousness. And with the Holy Spirit at work within us, neither do we now say when we hear the the law preached to us, ah, now I'm oppressed. Now I'm being enslaved. Now I'm under bondage again as I'm confronted again with my obligation in God's covenant of grace. No, that's not the reaction either. But when we read the commandments and when we hear the commandments preached to us, we say, yes, this is what I need to hear. I need to know my obligations as the freeborn child of God who's dead to sin and alive unto God, unto Christ. Knowing my justification in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, apart from any works of the law, and being renewed by the Holy Spirit after the image of Christ, this is now what I need to hear. I need to hear thy will for my life. Because by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, this is what I want to do. I want to walk in obedience. I must walk in the path of obedience. And so I need to hear this instruction. I want to do what pleases thee. I want to walk in thy ways, O Lord, and I need instruction. And I need to hear that I must do this. I need these admonitions. And where else should I learn thy commandments but in thy word? And through the preaching of that word. And when we hear the commandments preached to us, we say, yes, Lord, that resonates deep within me. That is the very expression of my own heart. And that's the desire of my heart. That's what the new man in me wants to do. And I thank thee, Lord, for bringing me this preaching and this instruction. I bring all of this up because this is at the root of the problem with antinomianism. An antinomian doesn't understand the attitude and the life of a regenerated, justified child of God. An antinomian is an adversary of the law. That's literally what the word means. Antinomian. Anti, against, nomian, or nomos, the law. An antinomian is one who is against the law. And there are different shades of antinomianism. It shows itself in different ways. One shade of antinomianism says this. Well, since Christ satisfied God's justice and bore all the punishment for my sins, I am no longer any, under any obligation to keep God's commandments. I can live as I please. Let us sin. That grace may abound. As if we're no longer even creatures under the authority of the maker of heaven and earth. And we become a law unto ourselves, little gods unto ourselves, allowed to do whatever we want in life. That's one shade of antinomianism. But another shade of antinomianism says this, and this is important. He says, don't preach to me about what a believer must now do and how a Christian must now live. Don't preach that a justified believer must be holy. Don't preach the obligations I have in the covenant of grace God has established with me in Jesus Christ. Only preach to me what Christ has done. Only preach forgiveness. Only preach justification. Don't preach sanctification. And don't preach the obligations of God's law for me as a new creature in Christ. That's an antinomian. And the antinomian will say, if you are going to preach the law... The only purpose, the only good purpose of preaching the law is so that we might see how wretched we are. Don't preach the law to me as something I must actually obey, as something I must actually do. 
And what this particular antinomian might also say is this. Well, since the regenerated believer will spontaneously do good works anyway because he's alive, you don't really need to tell me what to do. I'm going to bring forth good works anyway. Don't command me to bring forth good works. Don't instruct me in what those good works look like because that's man-centered preaching. And that's not preaching. That magnifies Jesus Christ. And it almost sounds good, doesn't it, congregation? It, it has something that, that sounds good about it. it. It sounds like antinomianism is really jealous for God's glory. Preach only Christ and justification, the forgiveness of sins. Pre- preach only that about Christ. Put it that way. Because everything else is about Christ too. But only preach that. What we need to see is that that kind of attitude is simply foreign to the new man and foreign to the Scriptures. The fact is, when the new man in Christ hears the commands of Christ, his Redeemer, he says, yes, thank you, Jesus, for that instruction, for that's what I need to hear. The command of God comes to the child of God, and the preaching says, you must worship God in spirit and in truth. And the child of God says, Yes, Lord, thank you for making that clear. I need that instruction. I need to hear this obligation because I am one who is so prone to simply go through the motions. I need to hear that command. Worship me in spirit and in truth. The command of God comes to the child of God and the preaching says, you must be subject to principalities. You must speak evil of no man. You must show meekness to all men. You must avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law. And the child of God says, Yes, Lord, thank you for making that clear. I need to hear that. And Titus does well when he preaches to the Christians on the island of Crete. That kind of word. Because that's what they need to hear. Really, if I know just how corrupt my sinful nature is, If I know that, then I will say, O Lord, teach me thy law more and more. Through the preaching, teach me thy law. Yes, show me my sin. And then lead me in the way everlasting. Sanctify me through the preaching of thy commandments. Because by the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence, that's exactly what I long for. I count thy word, thy law, more than great spoil. Because I want to walk in thy ways. This is freedom in Jesus Christ. If I know just how totally corrupt my sinful nature is, then I will also see that my own pessimistic attitude towards the commandments of God and towards the preaching of those commandments is itself the influence of my old man of sin. And I need to be very careful with that, beloved, because the fact is, we all have an antinomian spirit within ourselves. You have an antinomian spirit within you, and so do I. Our old man of sin is an antinomian. He's an antinomian and he's a legalist. It just depends on the circumstances and the times and what's most convenient for our old man of sin. Be proud and arrogant and be a legalist 
or indulge in sin and be an antinomian. And we must always, we must always be on guard against those two ditches. And the point is, with Christ's renewing of us by His Holy Spirit, the new man within us says, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation day and night. And the new man within us says, I want to magnify Christ. And I want to magnify Christ not just on Sundays, but throughout the whole week. So give me this preaching, Lord. Give me this preaching, this instruction that helps me to know what thy will is for me and the obligations that thou dost put upon me so that I might magnify thee and thy son, Jesus Christ, throughout the rest of the week. And everything in its place, beloved. Everything in its place. That's why we have the first section of the catechism. And we see how great our sin and misery is. And we have the second part of the catechism. We see how we are delivered from our sin and misery. And now we have the third section of the catechism. And we see how we are to show our thankfulness to God for that deliverance. So that sets forth the necessity of good works. And all of this really leads us into the second point of the sermon, their purpose. We've seen the necessity of good works. What is the purpose of good works? And I will be brief here because it really ties into everything that I've already said. What is the purpose of good works? Well, it's twofold, as answer 86 puts it. That so we may testify by the whole of our conduct, our gratitude to God for His blessings. And second, that He may be praised by us. Gratitude, thankfulness, and praise. I am thankful, beloved. You are thankful, beloved. I am so thankful. I want to show God my love for Him. I want to show God my joy at the wonder of His salvation. I have seen the great sin and misery into which I plunged myself in Father Adam. I've seen the horrible magnitude of my rebellion against God. I've seen a glimpse of it. And I've seen the total depravity of my corrupt sinful nature. I still see it and the motions of sin in the flesh. I've seen that. And I've also seen how God through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, has fully satisfied for all my sins. And I've seen how Jesus Christ, God Himself, became man. And He became that perfect, qualified mediator, fully God, fully man, perfectly righteous. And He lived a perfectly righteous life for me. And He died a perfectly atoning death for me. I've seen that. And it's always worth looking at again and again. There's always more to uncover of the depths of what God has done. But I have seen it. And I am thankful. I am thankful. And we can confess right away that that thankfulness itself is also part of God's grace at work within me. If it were not for the work of the Holy Spirit in me, I wouldn't be thankful. But for this too, I am thankful. I am so thankful for the renewing, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, which makes me thankful. And you see, that thankfulness, all of that thankfulness takes concrete form. The Catechism says, by the whole of our conduct, we testify our thankfulness by how we behave ourselves in life. 
We, we show our thankfulness by the way we treat others, by the way we worship God. And what this means is this, I don't continue in sin. I put away sin. I hate it and I flee from it. Sin is ingratitude. That's question and answer 87. Why do people refuse to repent of their sins? Because they are not thankful. Because they are ungrateful. Their sinful lives show that they are unthankful. Sin is ingratitude. Every time you sin, and I sin, we're basically saying to God, I'm not thankful. And we feel that too. And that grieves us. That wounds our consciences. And when we see our sins and we see our unthankfulness, our hearts are pierced and and we hate it. And we turn from it. That's where the catechism is going next. Conversion, Lord's Day 33. And we turn from that and we turn unto the way of God's word and we walk in that way and we live a God-centered life. And so the purpose of good works is that we might show our thankfulness. Good works are the fruit of thankfulness. And second, the purpose of good works is so that, as the catechism says, he may be praised by us. I want to show God my thankfulness, and I want to praise him. That's why we're zealous of good works. That's why I am careful to maintain good works. That's why the minister is going to exhort you to be careful to maintain good works. Because we want God to be praised. And I, as your minister, want God to be praised through your life. Just as the Apostle Paul and Pastor Titus and the Holy Spirit want God's people, want God to be praised by the lives of His people. As Jesus says in John 15, verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. The whole life of a Christian is a doxology of praise. And it's really that warfare of letting that doxology be heard as we fight against the old man of sin. And God is praised through the fruit that we bring forth, that fruit of good works. So that's the purpose of good works. We've looked at the necessity of good works. We've looked at the purpose of good works. Now, briefly, we want to look at the profit of good works or the benefit of good works. And First, let me say, good works are profitable. It makes sense to say that good works are profitable because good works are fruit, and fruit is profitable. Not profitable unto salvation, not profitable in the sense that we earn something by our good works, or or they get us saved, or they obtain anything for us, but they are profitable. As the psalmist says, in the keeping of thy law, there is a great reward. Is not prayer a profitable thing? Do you not experience prayer to be a profitable thing for you? Is not reading the scripture a profitable thing for you as you strive to show God your thankfulness? Just so, living in good works is profitable. In Titus 3 verse 8, we read that it is good and profitable for men that their minister tell them to be careful to maintain good works. Good works are profitable in the sense that they are beneficial. On the path of holiness, God causes His people to enjoy many blessings, many benefits. And there are two ways 
in which good works are profitable, as, as they are listed in the catechism. First, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. That everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. What does that mean? We have to be careful here. There has been discussion and, and controversy over this. Let us notice first what it does not mean. That phrase there in answer 86 does not mean that we are assured of our justification. It doesn't say that. It says we are assured of our faith. It does not mean that we are assured of our justification, of our righteous standing before God, simply by looking at our works. No, we do not look to our good works to obtain assurance of justification in the sense, in this sense, as if our good works can themselves assure us that we are righteous before God. As if my good works are my righteousness before God. No. Because the fact is, congregation, if you would study your good works, if you would look at them, you would see that all your good works are imperfect and defiled with sin. They are good works, but they are not perfectly righteous good works. They are tainted and stained with, stained with sin. Our only assurance of justification, our righteous standing before God, is knowing we have Christ. He is my righteousness. He alone is my righteousness. And I have Him as my righteousness before God. So the catechism is not saying, it doesn't use that language, that we are assured of our justification by uh, the fruits thereof. What the catechism, is, catechism means is this. It, it's simple. Good works are the evidence of a true living faith. Good works springing forth from your life are the evidence that you have indeed been engrafted into Jesus Christ and that you are a regenerated child of God. Because the fact is, good works are not possible without a true and living faith without first being engrafted into Christ and having the life of Christ flowing through you. So if you have good works, that's the evidence that God has worked within you a true and living faith. And, by clear logic, if you have a true and living faith, obviously that means you are an elect, redeemed, and regenerated child of God. So good works don't give you directly the assurance that you are righteous, as if looking at my good works, they tell me I'm righteous. No, but good works tell me that my faith is a true and living faith. It's not a dead faith. It's a, it's a faith that is active, and that comes from Christ. It's a genuine faith. From the fruits of my faith, it's clear that God's grace is working in me. And that's a great comfort. That's a great joy to the child of God. That's a benefit. I know I'm a child of God. You shall know them by their fruits. And you only experience that in the way of a holy life. A life characterized by good works. Only in the way of a holy life do we enjoy the assurance that our faith is a living faith. We are assured of our faith that it is a true and living faith by the fruits thereof, the fruit of good works. That's what that phrase means. 
That's the profit, the benefit of good works. Second, good works are profitable also in this sense, that by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. Not that I gain others to Christ, but the fact is, our good works are sometimes the means through which God himself brings an unconverted individual into the kingdom of God. Maybe someone, maybe like in 1 Peter 3, your own spouse beholds your chaste conversation coupled with fear. They see the meek and quiet spirit. Or maybe at work or in life, they see that thankfulness that characterizes your whole life and it causes them maybe to ask you a question, a reason for the hope that is in you. Why are you so thankful? What are you thankful about? And right there, you have the opportunity to share with them the gospel. Not just that I'm having a good day, but I have hope in Jesus Christ. I've been made a pilgrim and a stranger, and I have the hope of glory. And even in this life, I have Christ with me. And I am happy because I'm a Christian, a child of God. And, and you have an opportunity to invite them to come to church that they too might hear the good news, that there is salvation, there is forgiveness of sins, there is life in Jesus Christ. Or maybe someone sees that your confession and your lifestyle match up with each other. And that's impressive in our day and age. And the Lord uses that. The Lord may use that in His sovereign good pleasure to bring that person into contact with the gospel. What is sad is how often our sins and our unthankful behavior is a reason for others to blaspheme the name of God. How sad when our sins and our unthankful behavior gives occasion for others to stumble at the gospel and they're turned off by our unthankful and unholy lives and the inconsistency between what I supposedly confess and how I'm living. What another reason then for us to be zealous of good works, to be careful to maintain good works, that others might be gained to Christ and His kingdom come and be built up. Well, that's the, that's the profit of good works. We've seen then the, the positive place and function of good works. They have a place in the life of the child of God. We can speak freely about good works, understanding how we are to talk about them. May the Lord bless this preaching so that we are also more and more zealous of good works and strive to maintain good works and we show God our thankfulness for the good works we are privileged to bring forth. And may the Lord lead us into this third main section of the catechism that that we might always keep before us the proper perspective and that for us as the Newborn children of God, this is what life is. Life is a praise of thanks, a a, a song of thanks and of praise to the Lord. And that may be, may that even be in the preaching that we carry out and as we go forward in the rest of this week. To God be the glory for the wonder of his salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank thee for thy word, and how clear it is. Our minds are slow. We are prone to be dumb and slow learners, but thy word is clear. O Lord, by thy spirit, strengthen our intellect and cause us to understand how we are to understand the gospel. 
And we pray, plant us firmly in the truth of thy word. And Father, cause us to be thankful, to be overflowing with joy, with hope, with peace, comfort, and happiness, knowing our so great salvation in Jesus Christ. And may we go forth living a life that is careful to maintain good works, that we might be a people zealous of good works. For herein thou art greatly glorified. In Jesus' name and for his sake alone we pray. Amen.